0: red red robin comes bob along along there'll be no more sobbing when he starts throbbing that old sweet song wake up wake up you sleepyhead get up get up get out of bed cheer up cheer up the sun and red live
1: love laugh and be happy independent totally biased hulkington rovers you are listening to the Red Robin podcast with Joe Appleyard and Chris Johnson. Hello and welcome to the latest Red Robin heritage cast and we are delighted to be joined by a firm fans favourite. Our guest is a three times New South Wales Cup top point scorer, He has featured in the New South Wales Cup team of the year three times. He has played NRL rugby with the Newcastle Knights and he has played 13 times for Italy, scoring a total of 141 points. And also featured in two Rugby League World Cups. And he helped the Azure's beat star-studded England side with a drop goal in 2013. He signed for the Robins on a free contract in 2015. And went on to make 45 appearances, scoring 34 tries, 73 goals. And he finished his career with a win percentage of 53% whilst wearing the red and white of Hulkington Rovers. And he also helped Rovers reach the club's first Challenge Cup final in nearly 30 years. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Josh Mantelato.
2: How are you doing, Josh? Yeah, good. Thank you. Awesome introduction.
0: (laughs) Is that it? Shall we end the podcast there?
2: Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Let's sign off now.
0: (laughs) I know you've done your own work, Chris. Yeah, well, it's
1: first time for everything, isn't it, Joe? Yeah,
0: there is.
1: If if we've got a teacher on, I might as well get my own work done properly.
0: <laughs> so right, yeah. No, I can't believe you're a maths teacher, Josh. It's um, it's a weird one, isn't it? A career change, mate. Are you enjoying it? And how long have you been doing that? And how did that come along? You know, going in from rugby league to teaching maths.
2: Yeah, I um, went in my last year at Newcastle. I just did a couple of university subjects um, with the intention of going into uni to do my degree full time. But then, last minute. Uh, the Rovers contract came up, so I I put uni on hold. I went over to England for a couple of years, and I knew as soon as I got back from England that I would be um, diving straight into that degree, which I did, and I finished that last year. and Currently, a, a full-time employee, maths teacher at an all boys high school here on the Central Coast, so. It's um uh, it's a great job and I thoroughly enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I bet and I think it's vital. What we always speak about when we've had ex-guests on, we spoke sports like Clint Newton and stuff, and it's so vital that rugby league players have different careers after because, unfortunately, unless you're a top, top star, you don't have the wages that football players over here have when they're on a few hundred grand a week. And you need that backup plan, don't you? Because, you know, you can't think that you're going to have a 20-year career because it just doesn't happen with injuries. So it's good that you've got a you know plan B and it sets you instead good stead for the future, mate.
2: Yeah, exactly. I am... Um... I suppose the way I went, around, went about my rugby league career was a bit, a bit backward. I, you know, I didn't become pro until I was 26, so I had enough time to establish myself um, out in the workforce. Even then, um, I was a bit unsure of what I wanted to do as a like 20-30 year career, and then um, teaching just sort of fit. So, um, you know, I suppose I was one of the lucky ones in the regard that I didn't come straight out of school into a a football system and and get spit out, you know, four or five years later with nothing to do or nothing behind me. So I always had a plan in the back of my mind and, um, yeah, it sort of worked out for me.
1: He said, obviously, he didn't turn pro until 26. Where, where did your love of rugby league come from, and when did when did you start playing the game? And, and how did that then transition into obviously playing playing the game?
2: I um, I, I can't remember why I loved rugby league. It was it's a weird one because um, I'm quite a soft-natured kind of guy, I guess, but you know, when you get on the footy field, uh, you do get a bit emotional and rugby league is an emotional sport. And, um, you know, I I started playing when I was nine years old and I just liked going in the backyard and kicking my footy, you know, kicking goals, kicking drop goals. And, um, you know, playing footy could facilitate that. Um, But, um, yeah, I grew up all through my juniors playing footy and, all the way up until I was 25. That's when I moved on to the Newcastle Knights and sort of kicked on from there. Well,
1: and when when you started playing, obviously just as a kid, did, did you ever dream of playing rugby league as a as a career, as a job, or was it just, just was it a hobby that you just enjoyed doing and you didn't really have m- much desire to do anything other than just play the game?
2: I sort of went up and down with my. Um, with my intentions of, you know, going that far. Um, As a kid, you always imagine yourself on the big stage in front of a big crowd, you know, doing the magical play. Um, But as I got into my teens, you know, I was an average player, I never made rep teams. Even in my early twenties, I was still just an average amateur footballer. Then something just clicked, I guess. Um, Started making rep teams when I was 23, and I think it was just a matter of confidence, really. Um, You know, I looked at each little step as an improvement and and thought to myself, okay, what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? And um, it was just like a just a little ladder climbing up the scale and eventually reaching what, what my career highlight was, was um, pulling on an NRL jersey. So, um, yeah, if, if, you, if I had a message for any kid out there or anybody wanting to, to play rugby league at a high level, it's about just taking little steps, achievable, manageable goals and... Uh, making sure you're doing all the right things in order to achieve them.
0: I think that's key, isn't it, Josh? And I think what we notice over here is, obviously, we've done a bit of research on you, and you was at the Wong Rose. then you went to the Newcastle Knights New South Wales Cup team, which, you know, Michael Dobson's played for Clint Newton, former guests and former Robbins, and then you made yeah. the step up to the NRL. I think that's such a good, you know, them building blocks for you young guys when you was coming up in Australia, whereas over here, we have our amateur game, And then if you don't make it at 16, you have to either go back to just like the whole league or if you're at the um, Championship or League One, which isn't the best standard, unfortunately, especially that League One, you don't get that benefit. Whereas at least in Australia and you've got now Papua New Guinea getting involved in New Zealand, there's so many competitive leagues. There's so many, you know, decent NRL players who make the step down. And I think even you look at South Logan Magpies now, they've got um, Kevin Locke, Carmichael Hunt, Albert Kelly, former teammate of yours. So that's the difference, yeah. I think, in England and Australia. All the leagues over there are very competitive because you've got people like yourself who have got proper jobs and made the grade when you're 18, but still can find a way in. And I think that's vital in it. And that's probably why, why the Australian national team is so successful because there's so many people playing it.
2: Yeah, it's crucial for the growth of the game to have all those levels underneath the NRL set in place and to make sure that they're competitive. Um, in order to be that stepping stone to a high level. Um, you know, at the moment, over here in Australia, there's a bit of argument about the quality of the NRL, how there's a lot of good teams. Well, sorry, there's a handful of really good teams, handful of really poor teams, and just a little bit of nothing in between. And I they, they believe it's coming back to um, eliminating the under-20s Competition, which was quite popular here for about 10 years, um, so it is very important to establish those lower grades, even further down into the grassroots, um, into the amateurs, uh, to to ensure that you know the growth of um, the quality players is is being produced and you know flourishing at the top level.
0: Yeah, it's weird, isn't it, the NRL? And I don't think COVID's helped, but there's some teams like the Cowboys, then the Bulldogs. I know they've got a lot of people coming back this weekend, funnily enough, but there's some teams that are really struggling. And then you've got, I think the difference in um, the NRL is, it's a bit different to England in the sense of loyalty and stuff like that. There's a lot of people move from team to team. And you look at the Gold Coast Titans now, I mean, they've got probably one of the best players in the world. He's only 19, 20 he's David Fafita. And they've struggled the past few years. And, it's, it's changing all the time, whereas over here, you know, you're going to get St. Helens, Wigan, Warrington, who are always going to be at the top. Whereas in the yeah. NRL, you get teams like the Cowboys, who were so successful for years, and now the, the struggling, the cats seem to string two points together. mate. it's weird, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's it's a strange one to put together with those, those teams, but a lot of it comes down, I guess, to um, their roster management, um, salary cap, all that sort of stuff. Um, which is something that the Roosters at Melbourne Storm do really, really well. They they manage their roster um, perfectly. You know, they don't believe in paying more than what um, a player deserves to be paid, essentially. Um, So players want to go and play at those clubs for a little bit less, whereas, um, you know, teams like the Bulldogs and... And Manly, you know, you have to pay a player a little bit more in order to entice them to go there, which is not healthy for your roster at all. So I think a lot of those teams are going to feel that pinch for a couple of years to come.
0: Yeah, definitely with a salary cap as well, you've got to manage it well, haven't you? And we're on the subject of the NRL, mate. I just want to talk to you about your debut. You know, you spoke about your love of rugby league and for you to make your NRL debut, it was round 12, the 2013 season against the South Sydney Rabbitohs for Newcastle Knights. You actually scored on your debut and kicked three goals for you, for your friends, for your family. That must have been a proud moment, mate. A long time coming, but how was it to put that Knights jersey on? Represent Newcastle in the NRL. Score a try and kick three goals. It must have been a dream come true, Josh.
2: Yeah, it was a um, it was a very, very um, special night. I was I was just getting goosebumps as you were talking about that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I said, I was I was twenty six at the time when I debuted. So, in a way, that was a very big benefit because I knew the enormity of the occasion. But because um, I was old, I, had a, I could approach it a bit more maturely, I guess. Because um, I I didn't at the time I was only a part time footballer as well. I wasn't full time, so. I got asked to train with the first grade squad for that week leading up to that game. I was just called in just to cover for an injury. <clears throat> and I kept getting the call back to come in the next day, come in the next day. And then it was captains run the day before the game. And um, after training, Wayne Bennett comes over and he, just casually and just came over and he says, Josh, you're in. And I was thinking, in my head, I'm I'm going nuts. Like but I just I kept oh I just I just stood there nice and calmly. and said, Yeah. Oh, awesome. Great, thank you. And he went to walk away and then he turns around, and he comes back and he goes, by the way, you'll be goal kicking. I was like, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. So I'm just processing all these thoughts in my head. I hung back, did a bit of goal practice. And then I had to, to drive an hour home to pack my bag to get ready for the team bus to pick me up on the way to Sydney um, the night before the game. So it all happened so quickly. But um, when I ran out onto the field that night, I was just that happy. I was giggling. I was that excited. I wasn't nervous. I was just... Um, you know, I just thought, you know, finally you're here. Well done, you made it. So, um, you know, I I got all these text messages from club legends, um, you know, friends I haven't heard from in in a couple of years. Um, you know, so I've actually got an old phone, I've kept all those text messages too. So, um, yeah, it was probably one of the most special nights I've ever.
1: Uh, Probably must must have been quite sweet as well. The fact it was Wayne Bennett who was who was putting you into the team. You know, obviously a, a great at the game, someone who's been around the game for such a long time, achieved so much. One player yeah. who you did line up against, uh, line up alongside, is uh, Corbin Sims, Who's was obviously at Rovers now. Um, yeah. Yeah. What what can you tell us about Corbin and and what he was like as a player then, and and obviously you've seen his career sort of continue. What can you tell us about Corbin?
2: Yeah, well, that that particular year when I debuted, I debuted at twenty six. He debuted as well, and he was twenty. So um, we're both kind of in the same boat thereabouts. But he went on to play about a dozen games that year, and you know he um, he was he was in an aggressive front rower, even when he was young, coming through New South Wales Cup, even into NRL. You know, he, high energy. Aggressive player, um, you know, great to have off the bench to bring that line speed and extra punch with your hit ups. So, you yeah, know, I'm actually glad he's over there with the Rovers at the moment, and um, you know, got to see him wear the mossy jersey yeah. last weekend, which was pretty special.
0: Yeah, it was. It was such a shame because he had two um, head assessments, so he had to come off after 20 minutes. It was typical, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> Mossy chat on. I mean, a lot of the number 10s did from around the clubs at Super League, and we saw South Sydney putting the Mossy wigs on. Over 100 grand. Yeah. <clears> <clears throat> all off subjects, mate, we'll mention Mossy. Obviously, when you was at Rovers, Mossy wasn't there, but it's just an inspiration to us all, isn't it? And it's so tragic what happened. I mean, I remember when it happened at Wakefield and, we was there and Still for the life of me. Don't know what happened. It's the weirdest contact and it's obviously tense, yeah. something so major. Yeah. But what's it like <clears throat> over in Australia? Because obviously I know there's been a lot of coverage this week, but he's been great. And I think that's what the rugby league family is all about, Josh. We've seen both sides of the hemisphere raising so much money for him. What a good bloke and how inspirational he's Not just him, but his wife, Clarissa and his family.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that's the important thing. It's not just Mossy that's affected here. It's, it's his wife, it's his family. It's his extended family. It's his friends. So um, you know, for the rugby league community to get together and do something like that, um, yeah, it's I don't know. You, you can't measure it. It's yeah. It's amazing. You know, um, you really get this with with any other sports. Um, it's such a tight knit community, and you know, I remember reading about it when. It initially happened back in January last year. It's, um, you know, Rugby League was, it, it copped a couple of um bad stories, you know, with Mossy and then with Rob Burrow. and um, But the way that everybody on both sides of the world get together and help out those two blokes, it's it's pretty amazing stuff.
0: Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. So well done you guys on both sides of the hemisphere, the money you've raised. And, what we want to speak about you. Obviously, you mentioned you spoke about your NRL debut. We a massive talking point for that year was the Rugby League World Cup over here. Mate. And firstly, how did your Italian <clears throat> roots come along? I know your second year is Mantellato. It's very Italian. But um, how would you yeah. qualify for the national team?
2: Um, my my dad's parents yeah. uh, are Italian, so I qualified through them. Uh, they were born in Italy, and they they moved over here in late fifties, early sixties. So I, um, yeah, like the way I got picked up to play for the Italian team was so random. But um, this was back in 2010 playing amateur footy and I played against an ex-NRL player. He recognised my last name and <laughs> we'd just got a try and I was lining up a goal. He walked past me, he goes, are you Italian? I said, yeah. He goes, I'll speak to you after the game. right no, righto. <laughs> Anyway, he has a chat with me and tells me about the, the, um, the Italian team. They're going on a tour through Wales. And eight weeks later, I'm on a plane on a four week tour of Wales with a bunch of blokes I've never known, played against or seen before. And um, at the end of that four weeks, it was, we were best mates. So and then again, we went on the qualifiers in 2011 and then on to the World Cup in 2013. So it was um, that, being involved in that Italian, um, that those tours early on, that sort of planted that seed in my mind that, you know, if we make the World Cup, I want to be at the World Cup, so I need to play at a higher level in order for me to qualify. So that was a good um, motivation as well.
0: Yeah, I bet. I mean, when we spoke to um Justin Morgan, didn't we, Chris? He's mentioned about yeah. how he looked for Wales. Yeah. The coach was ringing up everyone with a Welsh second name <laughs> <and was laughs> playing earlier at the time. So I think that's the thing <sighs> with international. Will be. It's weird how, you know, there's a lot of people who you go, oh, well, they're playing for them countries. But I think it's good, Josh, for the international game when there's people of Italian descent or Lebanese descent, because it makes the international game a lot more competitive, doesn't it? Because being realistic, if we had to go off people who have been born, in them countries, you'd have about four decent teams. So I think it's good for the benefit in the long run that these, you know, the eligibility rules do exist because I think it evens the playing field a little bit, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, like that's right. I think there's two levels. You're either a um, is it a, a tier one nation or a tier two nation? So obviously your tier ones: England, New Zealand, Australia and your tier twos. So if you don't make a tier one team, you can go back and play for a tier two, which is great. And it does make the, um, the international games a lot more competitive. Um, you know, we saw a couple of upsets last World Cup with Tonga, you know, really establishing themselves pretty much as a tier one nation now. So if we can keep growing that and developing the international game, I think it's going to just going to benefit rugby league so much in the long run.
1: Josh, before, before you made your NRL, NRL debut and you played, played for Italy, uh, sorry, played for Newcastle, you went over to uh, Belgrade to play a couple of games. Uh, what was that like as a, a life experience, I suppose, because obviously a young lad uh, going halfway around the world to play rugby league in a... Mm-hmm. In a in a country which was I mean what was it October so I'm guessing the weather would have been that warm it yeah. would have been pretty cold. Mm-hmm. What was that like as an experience?
2: It was it was unreal actually because that was the year of the qualifiers which was 2011. So at that stage we managed to get Anthony Minicello on board, um, Cameron Serraldo on board. And Vic Morrow, who just was fresh off a grand final win with Manly. So we started to get these NRL players in and, you know, us amateur guys, well, me in particular, I was, you know, I was a bit starstruck. Anthony Minicello was my favourite player growing up. So to be the winger for him, who's the fullback, playing on the same field, to me that was mental. So... But to to go over to Serbia, Belgrade and play, they looked after us. They put us in this state-of-the-art football training facility for a couple of weeks, and we lived out of there and got to experience the nightlife in Serbia, which was top class, and that was a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah, it was (laughs) Pretty loose, to be fair, but um, it's just it's just memories and experiences, man. It was the best ever, um, you know. And like I said, at, at the end of a tour, you you are very very close mates, if not best mates, with those group of blokes because you you're living together, you're playing together, you're partying together. You know, that's the that's the uh, that's the combo you need for success.
0: Yeah, I agree, mate. You know, it's on the field vital, but it's off the field as well, which, you know, we've seen at Oakingston Kingston sometimes hasn't worked. But we'll mention the World Cup before we speak about your time with the Red and Whites, mate. I think yeah. what sh- you mentioned shocks in the 2017 World Cup. There was no bigger shock in the 2013 warm-up to the World Cup when <laughs> Italy played England. Was it at Salford? And you ended up beating England. I mean... I'm looking at the team now. You had some really good players, Minicello brothers, James Tedesco probably one of the best in the world at the minute. Aidan yeah. uh, Paul Vaughan. Um, so you had the talent there. When you beat England, what was the mood in camp? Because it was ridiculous. I mean, I remember the game on Televise, just like you know, broadcasting over here with Rugby League is a bit shoddy sometimes. A World Cup warm-up game, if it was in football, it would be on about 12 different channels across the country. But it wasn't yeah. available for the fans. I remember looking at the report and thinking, God, I can't believe this Italian team has done a job over England. That must have been such a good experience leading up into the World Cup, mate. Um, it
2: was it was crazy because when when we're walking into the sheds before the game, um, you know, I was talking to a couple of players, and we're just hoping not to get absolutely flogged, um, but. When we ran out there um, our forward pack was just so uh competitive and had a lot of energy and really restricted their attack. And I think when we went into half time it was maybe I don't know if we were leading twelve six or if we were six all or something like that. But when we came at half time or we like I think we have done pretty well there, we took off our starting 13 to rest for the rest of the game. And we put on put on the rest of our squad. And as the minutes kept ticking over and ticking over, we're going, okay, we're we're hanging in there, you know. Um, I think it was 12-10 and then they score again, but they mix, miss miss the goal, so it's 14-12 to them. Five minutes to go, we, we get a penalty and I'm off at this stage. I'm just sitting on the sideline with my jacket. Enjoying the game. We, we go for a penalty goal with, you know, right in front of the sticks, you know, in a, a warm up game, and it's 14 all. And then um, I think James Tedesco goes down the cramp, so I run on with three minutes to go. We, we kick the ball downfield, and Josh Charlie knocks on 10 metres out from his try line. And I'm looking at the clock, and it's two minutes to go. I'm thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for a field goal I've never kicked a field goal in my life, nor have I kicked another one since. Um, but you know, we just—I just told the told the players where to go. I'm thinking, yeah, that's good enough. And all right, pass me the ball now. I'll snap one through. And I just remember, Chris Hill and James Graham sprinting at me, and I just just split the two of them, and it went through. And um, we managed to hold on for the last minute to win it. And I must say, the next the next forty eight hours was probably the biggest party I've ever been involved with. Come. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we went out to Leeds two nights straight and had a great time. Um, and I remember the reports in the paper and in the rugby league magazines over there, they were they, they bashed the uh the English team after that performance. So for us it was great, kick started off our campaign and um, yeah, like I said, it was it was a it was a great great weekend.
1: And that was obviously, you know, not long before you, your first game in the World Cup as well, so was the coach showing you in the celebrations, or was he turning a bit of a blind eye while he was out celebrating?
2: No, we, um, like <clears throat> Anthony Manichello was our captain, and we were, as a group, we were big on training hard, being present at every session, but... Also, enjoying ourselves, and you know, when we when we go out and enjoy ourselves at night, we're enjoying each other's company. We're we're not we're not carrying on, but we're just having a good time, really. Even if we do get get home at three, four in the morning, we're still there at training, doing what we need to do to prepare for the next game. So, it it built a um like a solid solid group a bit of a unity amongst us and you know even though we 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 partied pretty hard after that england game we came out the next week and we beat wales down in wales at uh i think it's a millennium yeah yeah on on opening night so um you know it didn't hinder us at all
1: probably Bit of a whirlwind going from beating England, partying, you know, back training hard. And then, obviously, like you said, you opened the World Cup at the Millennium Stadium, 40-odd thousand people there. And, yeah. uh, again, for you to remember as well, because I think you've got the official man of the match as well.
2: Yeah, I, I, I did. I um, I played okay. I, I didn't think I deserved the man of the match. I thought Aiden Guerra was, head and shoulders, the best in our team that night. But I... um. I was lucky. I got to try and set up another one for for Tedesco, so kicked a few goals as well, which helps. So um, yeah, that night was was unreal. Um, you know, my partner was there, my parents were there, uh, my friends were there. They came over to watch me for the three weeks as well. So um, you know, to put on a performance like that for the first World Cup official World Cup game for Italy was. It was unreal and, you know, it's cemented in history.
1: Yeah, and then obviously your the next game was against Scotland where, where you drew 30-all. You got five from five with your kicks. Just, what was that whole World Cup experience like for you and and did it give you a taste of maybe mm-hmm. wanting to come over to, to England in the Super League and, and maybe try your hand at play in Super League rugby?
2: Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. I, um, that, that game against Scotland was up north at... Um, oh, Workington. Workington town, yeah. Miles right. away.
1: Absolutely miles away from anywhere. Yeah, it
2: was freezing, it was yeah. wet, muddy um, and we were, we actually we, we missed, missed the jump to, to begin that game and we were down 14-0 but we ended up coming back 30-all in the end. Um, the thing I took out of playing in that World Cup, was just the roar of the crowd. Um, even though, especially the third game against Tonga, we had, had an Italian team up against the Tongan team in a packed Halifax stadium, who, and, and the crowd were right into it. It was about two degrees, I think. Ice was on the ground, and every fan stayed there till the end. Um, yeah, you know, and I really that's what I really respect about the English supporter base. They're so loyal. They stay till the end. Um and they're vocal. And that's that's one thing I love playing in front of is a vocal crowd. I, I think there's nothing better.
0: Yeah, and it won't long, you know, after that, since we've back over these shows, mate. It was announced in August twenty fourteen that he was signing for a three-year deal with all Kingston Rovers. Firstly, before we you know we speak about your time, I think that was a transition period. Obviously, Chris Chester had joined late mid twenty fourteen. Sorry, and he was building his team. I'm looking at some of the signings now: Daryl Golden, Seo, James Donaldson, Karen Dixon, Laroya, McCarthy, Kelly Blair. There's so many people, mate. Terry Campisi, another Italian teammate of yours. Yeah. How did the move to Wilkinson Rovers come about? Because it must have been a shock, you know, to, to get a free deal offered by an English team. Was it Chessy who rang you up or was it Mike Smith? Did he come over to Australia? How did that move come along to Easton still, mate?
2: Um, from my understanding, Mike Smith was here um, doing a bit of scouting and because he knew Clint Newton and Dobbo from earlier years, Mike actually came to one of our Newcastle games and I think he might have mentioned to the boys oh, am I free next year? Like, am I off contract or whatever? So I think they um, they uh, put in the good word for me and next minute I get a phone call from my manager with a three-year offer. And it blew me away because I was resigned to the fact that uh, I was going to leave Newcastle and just uh, go to uni full-time and play uh, reserve grade. On the side, um, so for that to come through, it was it's a great opportunity, and um, yeah, jumped at it.
1: You mentioned there about obviously Dobbo and uh, Mean Machine, Clint Newton. What what did they tell you about the club, and what did you know about the club, obviously prior to, to signing and having the
2: discussions with Mike Smith? To be to be fair, I didn't know much about the club, um, but what the thing I did get off. Novo uh, and Udo was, you know, these fans are passionate. They expect nothing short of your best, and if you provide that each week for them, um, you know they'll welcome you with open arms. So that's what I took away from uh, speaking with those guys about it and what I intended to to bring when I came over, because I didn't want to be that the next Australian signing who I'm not so mean to be um, generalise here or be stereotypical, but just to be over there for a pay packet and a holiday, I wanted to be someone who made a difference. Um, and, you know, I, I felt like I was just coming into my peak, I guess, you know, 27 turning 20, 28. Um, so it was a good opportunity for me to show England – what I heard.
0: Yeah, I mean, when all these people signed, I think that's always been our trouble Old against Rovers, mate. You know, we get rid of 10 people and then we sign another 15 and it's, you've got to build, are not you? You've got to build these relationships on and off the field like you mentioned with your Italian squad but, so when we got people like yourself over, Terry Campesi, um, Bobby Blair, in Dixon, who was obviously at London at the time, but Electric, there was a big change in the air, I think, at all Kingston Rovers. And that round one fixture against Leeds Rhinos. I know we got beat 30 points to 40, but there was nearly 12,000 people at Craven Park that day. And I remember thinking, we've got some star qualities about us. That was your competitive debut for the Robins. Can you tell us much about it? I mean, it was a really good atmosphere, but who was playing against the team Leeds-Ranos that would come across quite a few times that season, who had Maguire, Burrow, Lulaire, Peacock. Must have been a bit of an eye-opener, mate, first game. And actually, Ryan Hall, who said, um, he said that's the most ty- the tiring game he's ever played in that first game in 2015. He said they had the tension and the, the passion on the pitch and it was just so, you know, rapid. It must have been a bit of an eye-opener for you, your first game against a team that had gone to win the treble.
2: Yeah, that... Um... I remember that game so clearly. Um, you know, I picked up Bobby Blair on the way to the game, and just remember saying, "Yeah, we got to win this today. Um, home, home ground, Sunday afternoon, against pretty much you know the best, the best team in the league." Um, you know, I was well aware of who Leeds are and what they've achieved in the past. So, I was a little bit not starstruck, but I knew what the task ahead of me was. And yeah, like you said, we got off to a really good start that day. Um, yep. I think we were up 24-16. and then even after half time, we're up thirty to sixteen. We just ran out of um, ran out of gas in the end, and typical Leeds fashion, you know, they play hard and fast, and they can burn you quite quickly um but I I do remember that running out to the stadium and and the roar of the crowd and um yeah that was that was a that was a good day but obviously I wish we won but sitting in the sheds after that game we were so disappointed to let that go and um you know we weren't sitting there thinking oh we got close but we did okay. We 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 genuinely genuinely thought, um, you know, we let that one go and um, we bottled that and tried to carry it on for the next couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, and I think for, for us supporters, we you know there was a raft of new signings coming in, wasn't there? And especially some some big players like uh, Campezzi, Albert Kelly, obviously yourself coming coming over, um, and I think the expectation was really big. Um, and as a support, obviously we, we played lead, we lost um 40 points of 30. We then followed that up with another loss, this time against Wakefield, conceding 44 points. And it actually took us, I think, I think it won't until seven, our seventh or eighth game, to concede anything less than 20 points. Was it taking yeah. time for the team to gel with all the new signings coming in? Obviously players leaving. Um was it maybe too big of an adjustment for for the club as a whole? Looking at them, especially their early field games, where yeah, we won a couple, but we we lost a few as well.
2: Yeah, like when you when you change over that many players in an off season, yeah, it's bound to um, bound to have its ups and downs early on. You know, obviously, it took us a while to gel. Um, you know, if you look at our our starting thirteen, but our whole seventeen those first couple of rounds, you could probably say that 10 to 11 of those players were brought in just that season. So, yeah, you know, it's a, a lot of combinations. Um, you know, I remember in the first probably six weeks, Chezy was yo-yoing between Chris Wellham, Liam Salter, Chris Wellham, Liam Salter, you know, um, you know that sort of stuff um, until he finally settled on Chrissy. So, um, you know, just little little teething periods like that, and you know that Wakefield game. I don't, I don't know what happened that day, but it was just a horrible game. But the weekend after was the um, the World Club Challenge, so we got an extra week of training under our belt, and then we came out and we um, got our first win over Wigan. Yeah. at home, which was one of the real special games in my memory. First win. First win at home, and we were down twenty to six against the grand finalists. You know, and to come back and win that one—that was that was awesome. That was a tough game.
1: And well, what, obviously, we've talked about the first few games there. What was it like for you settling into Hull as a you know still quite a young bloke? Um, was you grouped together with all the other Aussie lads who would come across? Where was you living? You know, how was you, how did you just, mm. just settle into the area in general?
2: I, um, I got placed in at the marina, in the apartments at the marina. So I was in a good spot. I could walk into town, uh, get anything I needed. And it was only about 10 minutes uh, to the stadium. And I ended up staying at the marina for my whole stay. I moved into the apartment next door. Uh, two bed, two bath, a little bit bigger. So um, I was yeah I was pretty lucky. I, I was in a good spot. Um, I think Kenny, Mitch, and Campo got put in at the next at the next dock. Uh, I forget what the name was. Victoria. Um, yeah, might be around there, Vicky Dock. So they were there. They were close. So um, and Albie and Bobby, they were in town. So we could all walk, meet up wherever we needed to go, and. The six of us, um, myself, Albert, Bobby, Mitch, Campo and even um, Dane Tills when he arrived, we all you know, got together and made sure we were keeping each other company when we needed to and um, yeah, looking after each other.
1: Well, one thing that me and Joe talk about, is obviously we've seen a lot of Super League clubs now that try and recruit maybe two or three Aussies or New Zealanders or South Sea Islanders at the same time to try and create, you know, that that group of, and so people are isolated. But we question sometimes whether then, does that create groups within a team with like the English lads or the English lads who are maybe travelling in from West Yorkshire to play? Then you might have a group of the Aussies. You know, do do you start to see little groups forming that don't always help the cohesion in a team?
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, with with us, it was important for us to 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 stay connected um, because there was no one else for us there, really. Um, you know, Mitch, he was by himself. Terry, he was by himself to begin with. So were Albert and Bobby. So um, we made sure first and foremost that we were connected. But I I, I understand what you're saying, hundred percent, because. In my mind, when I was over there, I made sure I went out of my way to to get amongst every other group that was happening at the club. And and so did Terry, Um, you know, he was always, as a captain, he was always organising group lunches before or after training or days off, you know, just to get that team bonding together. And I thought that 2015 squad was the most connected group of blokes uh, I've probably been a part of. We we all got on together. There was no, no click. There was no resentment towards anybody. Um, you know, yeah, you had your, your West Yorkshire bus that would come in with their seven or eight blokes, but even they would stay for a lunch or they'd even stay the night if we had an early morning recovery um you know that's they stayed in our houses you know on a couple of beds so um yeah that 2015 team was such a tight-knit group it was such a shame that it sort of split up a little bit the following year
0: yeah it was it was and we'll speak about that 2016 season soon, but we've got so much to talk about 2015 because it was a really positive year and i think for you josh we'll mention the city of all there mate you without Mm -hmm. all kingston rovers and all fc it's it's a hotbed of rugby league. And did, did you know the magnitude of the derby? When before we speak about your first competitive derby at the KC, when did you realise God is quite you know is quite hostile in this city? Because for an Aussie coming over, even when we spoke to Clint Newton, until he got um he got um a bit of grief from a woman in Sainsbury's when he was at the West End. <laughs> He, he didn't, um, didn't realise how much it meant to fans. And when you came over, when was the first time you found out about the Rava between the red and whites and the black and whites?
2: Um, probably, I always heard about it, but to experience it, I think, you know, going out on the town, you'd, you'd run into people and you'd introduce yourself and, you know, they'd say that they're black and white you know, they can't talk to you and all that sort of stuff. But it was all just a bit of banter. But the enormity of it, I found, was the first friendly at their home stadium. And it was a like a friendly for us as a trial game. There was 11,000 people there. And I was, I ran out and thinking, holy shit. <laughs> you know, this, okay, this is what it's all about. Righto. So it was probably that moment when, um, when I realised, you know, it's a pretty pretty big thing when 11,000 people are turning up to watch you play friendly. Um yeah, you know, that's pretty special.
0: Yeah, I think the, what, as we're talking to the Rovers fans, as much as we love playing at Craven Park, the Derby's there, I think the atmosphere, just because of the style of the stadium at the KC is a little bit better and none other than that Easter game when we beat all FC six points to 20 at their ground, Unbelievable game, because I think what we've noticed at Hulkingston Rovers, we always play well on the Good Friday or the Easter Thursday, and then we yeah. never back it up. But we ended up being fourth over that Easter period and beating Huddersfield on the Monday as well. But for you, that derby, 21,210 people there, it must have been amazing, mate. I mean, when Karen Dixon, he ran, he ran LFC, ragged that day, I remember he line breaks for fun. John Lunt scored. I think it might have been one of his. I think it might have been his debut or his um, yeah, fourth game. Yeah. And Terry Campisi as well. Everything clicked that day, and the atmosphere was unbelievable. That must have been one of the best experiences you've had in a Red and White share, mate. That um, Easter Thursday derby.
2: Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was crazy. Um, you know, we we played so well that night. I thought defensively, we were we were so strong. Um, and even in attack, we're we'll, we'll punching holes in them um, all over the place. So, um, you know, a good night with a boot too, which was good, thank God. Um, you know, you don't want to miss goals in those sorts of games. And, um, yeah, to to walk up to the Rovers fans at the end and see the whole – is it the – what end is that that you guys stand in? Knopf. Northern end, yeah. Yeah. So that was just bumper to bumper, and um, you know, to clap you guys off—that was that was a special moment. Yeah. Yeah,
0: bet, and I think. What we noticed about that team, Chris, I don't know, you know, about you, but we had some star studded players and we had players like yourself, Josh Albert, and Kelly, Sean Lunt, who could just turn games within a second. And I think that's what we definitely had the advantage over all that night, Chris. It was M1 to remember wanting, mate.
1: Yeah, I think um I mean that Easter period, I think that is the last time, Joe, that we have actually won good Friday well, good Friday, Thursday,
0: and then backed it up on the Easter Monday. I don't think we've done that since, have we? Um, no, because even when we was in the Championship, we got beat to, to lose on that Monday. Yeah,
1: so it's yeah. always been a bit of an Achilles heel for us. But I think that time is, yeah, we'd had a bit of a stop-start early season, and then we got to that Easter yeah. period. Like you said, Joe, we got to fourth place. Do you know what? I thought, as a supporter, we, we really felt, you know what, we're kicking on now. We, the signings are starting to gel. We're starting to then turn that into performances. You know, we're getting, we've just beat our biggest rivals. Um, obviously we then went and, and lost to Castleford but I think that time there was really special because it's when we, we really thought do you know what, this season we, we might really kick on here
0: Yeah, did you feel that Josh?
2: I um, <clears throat> I remember walking in uh, probably the Tuesday after that good Monday and Chesney mentioned that we're fourth, he said don't worry about looking at the ladder you know, we're, we're looking at to continue on, and you know, that's that was all good, but I think um, that weekend took it out of us because Thursday night was high emotion, Monday against Huddersfield was physical. Um, that was one of the toughest games I can remember playing in for Rovers, just physically and mentally. It was just tough, and you know, Huddersfield had a big pack big, big team. So to get that win on Thursday and then to get that win on the Monday, um, it took a lot of us, I thought. And I think that Cass game the following week probably showed that.
0: Yeah, it was, um, I think that was the game on telly, wasn't it? I, I remember yeah. the game at Castleford, yeah. And I think yeah. the benefit of the Super League, as much as we've compared it to the NRL uh, in the earlier parts Josh, we do get a few competitions and one competition that's definitely going to stand out at your time in Hawkingston Rovers for the decent reasons in 2015 and terrible reasons in 2016, but we'll speak about that soon. The Challenge Cup. Um, firstly, did you know much about the Challenge Cup growing up in Australia?
2: Yeah, I um, always, um, always heard about it. Um, I remember when I signed um, with Rovers, I was speaking with... Danny Badiris, who was at Leeds for a few years. And he said, mate, the challenge Cup, it's like nothing you'll ever experience. And he played in two finals over there, I think. But he said he lost them both. And he said, that was just, that was one thing I wish, you know, I got to achieve. And, you know, I, I took that on board. And there was, there was this, just this feeling. That year about the Challenge Cup um, that we could probably do something within it, um, and when we came up in that first game against Bradford, they were a championship team, but they were they weren't uh, they weren't any pushover. So it took us a while to get over the top of them, but we ended up scoring fifty points and and beating them in the end. And you know, to be fair, we had a pretty rough draw in the Challenge Cup, but it ended up all right.
0: Yeah, you have to um, beat the best to be the best. That's what me and Chris always say. And you scored four tries, and you was actually against one of your old teammates, Ryan Shaw. You scored four tries past him that day, didn't you?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, four tries and um, how many goals. And That was a good day for me personally, because like you said, um, I really wanted to make sure that we won those... (laughs) those challenge cup games, um, you know, cause if you lose, you're out, that's it. So, um, I thought I played, played well during that tournament and, uh, I really made an effort to, to probably play my best game on those days and, you know, to get, to get past that little bastard four times was pretty cool too. So even though I didn't know him too well back then, um, I'll still send him that father every now and
0: then. Yeah, we'll have to um, click that, Chris, for when we put Yeah, we'll
1: get that stuff. put out on social media. Don't worry, we'll yeah. remind it.
0: And you mentioned <laughs> um a tough draw, mate. We'd been beat, I think it was 16-0 two weeks previous by this team, Wigan. We actually played them at Lee's ground, but to beat Wigan Warriors 16-12, there, there weren't as many people there that night in the Challenge Cup, mate, because I think we were all expecting another um another hammering. But when Tompkins knocked it on and Kenny Sea went over in that corner, what an amazing feeling and a great effort from the boys that night. Um, for you to go over, to play, I know it was at Lee, but to play Wigan away, to pick up a victory, we're in the quarterfinals of the Challenge Cup. Must have been such a, a tough 18 minutes, but worthwhile, mate.
2: Oh, that that was one of the best. That yeah. was easily top three. Um, top three games. Just, I just remember defensively, they were attacking our line so much. In that first half, and we just kept turning them away, kept turning them away, and we had we had a lot of players out that night. We had we we're missing Albert Kelly, Sean Line, Mitch Allgood, um, maybe even James Green. Uh, uh, yeah. We we were missing a lot of players, and we still we still um you know came away with that win. So yeah, I just remember at the end. Uh, when the siren went, um, if you see it on video, we all just jump in the air and start hugging each other. We, yeah. that was um, that was by far one of the one of the best games I've probably ever played in.
0: Yeah, unbelievable. And when we are in the quarterfinals, we play Carlan at home, and it was a bit of a weird one. We, we took quite a big lead, didn't we? And we was kind of shocked how easy it was. And then they started to come back, but for you, what, what was your memories of that quarterfinal night? I mean, it was a patch curve back, it was you know a one win away from a semi-final, we hadn't done that in God knows am, um, since 2006 when we was in the second tier. That must have yeah. been, uh, it was um, squeaky bum time there, especially the one I think Elliot White went over too yeah. quick to
2: Yeah, it, um, that was a long day, it was a night game, so, you know, I just remember thinking about the game all day and then uh, it was a sunny afternoon. Well, afternoon, it was 8 o'clock at night, but the sun was out. So, fast track and, you know, we were at home, packed house. So, we got out to, I mean, 26 nil or something like that, 22-0. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we were confident going into that game. Obviously, they, they sort of came back a, a bit in that second half, but I think we did enough in that first half to... Establish that win and um, you know advance us into the semi-finals. I, um, you know, I think I played a played a good game as well, which I was happy with. Um, you know, just to um, do. I just remember at the at the end when, when we made our last tackle on the siren. I just remember just walking over to Chris Willeum and just hugging him and. Just thinking, thank God, thank God that's over. Because that was a long, that was a long second half.
0: you got a question Just going into us. that
1: game, I was just wondering, obviously we'd lost uh, Terry Campese a few rounds earlier. Um, what was the feeling around the camp around them that game and maybe a couple of games before it? Obviously, losing Terry who that had such a big influence on the side so far during during the season. Uh did, did it affect the lads or was it was it just sort of, you just got on with it? Or, or, or was you starting to think maybe our season might unravel without Terry being around?
2: Um, Terry was, I think he was the Super League Player of the Month two months out of the first three. So he he started like a house on fire. He was playing some unreal footy. Um, he could just control the game like no one else. And he was a good foil for for Albert Kelly, As well, you know, Campo just run the show and Albert just plays off the back of it. So when we lost Campo, I think it was against Cass, um, which was the weekend after Magic Round. And I can't remember who we played against after Cass. Witness. Witness at home and we won. So I think because we played at home on Sunday against Witness, we we said from that day, like, you know, Campo's gone for the year, but we need to move on. We've got a challenge cup to compete in. We've got a, a league, um, you know, to, to play for. So uh, it was good that Bobby Blair, is he, a fuller 5'8", and he just slotted straight in there and he did an awesome job. Um, so... You know, I think we just kicked on uh, as best we could without him.
0: Yeah, definitely, mate. It was such a big loss, you know, so influential in them early games. Probably while I was up there in the ladder. But one game that obviously you know we're going to speak about is I've still never heard atmosphere like it. And when you were getting goosebumps on about um, your NRL debut, I still get goosebumps speaking about this atmosphere. That, That Challenge Cup semi at Leeds, mate, against Warrington, you know, really good game by you as well, kicking five goals and scoring. I've never seen a game like it. I don't think I ever will ever again. The atmosphere after the game, when a little respect came on. For you, just try and sum up what it was like on the pitch, because I remember, I, I couldn't bear watching it for 80 minutes. I remember when they went over early, when Ryan Atkins scored, and I was like, oh, no, don't do this again. But <laughs> the lads come back, and I remember when um, Sean Lunt scored, I think it was the 78th minute, and then you got the kick to settle the game. I've just never seen... So many grown blokes crying and hugging each other and families together. It was an amazing moment. It must have been amazing for you and the guys on the pitch as well as us off it.
2: Yeah, it was... Um, oh, That, that day, um, there's only been probably one or two moments in my life where you can just feel the energy in the room before kick-off and you just know you're going to win and that was one of those moments um the lead up to that game was perfect we left the hotel just before we left the hotel willie poaching our assistant coach he cut up this video of all these moments throughout the challenge cup up to that point and i think he put some music behind it and i just remember sitting there in that in the theater, just watching it, and I was getting goosebumps. I'm thinking, we are on, we are so on here. And uh, Gavin Miller came and spoke to us before the game as well. And when we when we when we went out there, and you can just see the just just nothing but a sea of red in front of us in that stand, and the place was shaken. you were thinking, yeah, we're alright here. And then they kick off ball goes out and they get the scrum and they score straight away so <laughs> i think oh, it's not supposed to go like this but we we weren't even i suppose um, stressed or bothered that they got that early try but i think it probably did did them um uh, probably a lot worse in regards to their mindset uh they probably thought oh this is going to be easy but um like you said we we came back and we scored two tries in about two minutes. Uh, I got one and Kenny got the other. Especially when Kenny went over for, off that kick, that the place that we fell over it was that loud. Um, yeah, we, we went in half time confident, and you know we just said let's do that again. And then we we came out that second half and did the job. And I just uh, yeah I. I do replay that that game a lot on the TV and in my mind. I think it was um, that's one of those um, one of those moments in your life that you that probably justifies the reason why you play rugby league or why you do what you do and. I felt justified on that day. Um, it was, there is no emotion. Well, I haven't experienced anything that that comes close to, to sharing that moment with all those fans. Obviously, if we went on to the final and won, it probably would have been a lot better. But uh, for me, that was my, that was probably my pinnacle.
1: I think what Hopefully. was really unique as well is that and, you know, if you was a Warrington fan, you probably wouldn't have been that happy. But because we had that terrace along the side of the pitch, it was almost like Craven Park in terms of the East Stand. And I think yeah. it was one of the unique times where the players and the fans were almost in unison in that when the team were maybe struggling a little bit and we could see players going down injured or Warrington were getting a bit of a roll on. It's almost that like the crowd and, the, and that terrace responded and and tried to sort of pump you back up again. And and I think that that end bit where Sean Lunt scores and then obviously we get the final hooter. It was almost like um relief euphoria. Um because also as as a supporters, we'd been sort of um we had the, the playoffs in two thousand and nine, two thousand and eight, but we'd been a bit downtrodden, we're desperate for success. You know, it was our first Challenge Cup appearance in nearly thirty years. So it was almost all that emotion coming out in one moment. But I think it was genuinely something shared between the players and the fans. And that's why I think it was such a unique moment for, for, for all of us.
2: Yeah. And um, like I said, I I think we played our final that day. Although um, that was when we peaked. And it was, like I said with... That feeling before a game you just knew it was just energy just pure raw energy um and you know to walk around and you know see see the people in the crowd hug them high five them uh to see their faces it's um yeah that was something that i'll probably never get to experience ever again but grateful for the fact that I got to experience something like that and um, I got to share it with a lot of people that day and, you know, I, I didn't get to sleep, I think, probably till eight or nine the next morning, I think. Because um, we went back, we went back to Hull. I think Tommy Coyle's fight was that night.
0: Yeah, it was against Luke Campbell, yeah.
2: Yeah, so that that was like a Hull verse. Hull FC versus Rovers sort of a uh, match up and so then after the fight we all went out and I just remember walking home after being in some nightclub and the sun was up and I got to my apartment and I remember I recorded the semi-final on my Sky so I just, I put that back on and (laughs) sat there and watched it while I had myself some breakfast and um but yeah, it was a um at moment in time. I, I think that day yeah, as
1: well, it was almost like um for me, someone who likes to watch sport, have a beer, etc., it was almost a utopia day. Mm-hmm. You know, you had your team playing in a Challenge Cup semi-final, you won. Then I, I went back as well and watched the boxing with my mates, you know, went in the pub afterwards. It was if someone was gonna plan a day for you. That was almost a perfect, your perfect day, wasn't it? And then I think I did yeah. the same thing the next morning, I relived the game again. Um, and it, it was almost the same feeling, you know, goosebumps about watching it. But um, I do feel like um, that was the final. Uh, obviously, yeah. that's only in hindsight, because going into the final, you know, y- y- your expectations building and building again. But, um, you know, as, as players, did you sense straight after the game or, you know, the, the few days afterwards that, you know, you'd, you'd almost achieved something there or was the focus straight back on no lads, this isn't it, the finals, the, the really, the big one? Um,
2: it's hard to say. Like, we were, we were so happy to be in the final um, and I think a lot of the fans, they were just happy to be at Wembley. Yeah. Um, it didn't matter if we won or lost. To go to Wembley Stadium, um, that's what they wanted. So, I think I think a lot of the mentality was, um, yeah, happy to be there. That may have played a little bit of a part. I'm not too sure, but um, our our week leading up to that that final was horrible. I just remember a lot of things that was sort of out of character for us as a club. Um, we were doing, obviously you have to do a lot of promotional stuff, which comes with it, which is fair enough. But I felt that we tried to fit in a lot in that week. And come, come the weekend, I remember waking up, and going, I'm going, I'm exhausted. How, how am I, how can I get up for this huge game? Um, yeah, I was just mentally drained. And I think a lot of the boys were too. And you could see in the result, it was, it was just an absolute slaughter. Um, fair enough, like Leeds, they went on to win the treble and probably one of the best Super League teams of the past 25 years. And um, they were red hot that day and we had nothing to stop them, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that was unstoppable, mate. One thing I think Neil did Neil Ugell did a podcast with um, Peter Fox in XP. I, I might be totally wrong. It was something up with a training ground the day before or something, or did some training was just not right or something? he said he'd never, it was a bit like it was in a bit of a dream when it happened. What can you tell uh, us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, so like, well, Leeds played on the Friday night and we played on the Sunday. So they had a two day head start on us already. We played witness away on that plastic pitch. Yeah. So I think we rested a few blokes. Um, I was sick that week. I I had gastro or something. I, I couldn't leave my apartment for four days. So going into that witness game, I was so underdone, just exhausted. But we got through that game with a win, which was crucial because we needed it for the, for the middle eights and then um, we were straight back in the training that Monday and I'm thinking what are we doing? Why, why are we training full on here? It's it's Monday. Like, this should be our recovery day and then I think we um, I think we get we might have trained to get on the Tuesday I can't remember but then we get down on the, on the bus down to London for a day and then it would have been on the Friday. We we had our last training session. Drive out in the middle of nowhere, for about forty-five minutes, and we turn up this rugby pitch. It looks good, like it's a it's a great looking pitch. We're thinking, oh, this is all right. And the um, groundskeeper goes, no, 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 you're on the um, you're on that field. And the field he was pointing to had clumps of grass. It was just like patchy. It looked like a bloody cow paddock and
0: I'm thinking, oh no!
2: And then we go th- run through our captain's run, and it's blowing a gale, and balls going everywhere, and Dane Tilts just—he looked at Tony Pulis, and they just shook their heads and thought, oh no! So it was probably a, a bit of a, um, a bit of a sign in the end, but it wasn't good. Yeah, I just remember that week. Just we didn't get that right. I do unfortunately.
0: It's probably that experience as well from you know, from Neil, from Chez, because we've been away for so long, and I don't mean inexperiences experiences in they don't know what they're doing, but it's, you're in a different scenario, aren't you? But before we move on to the 2016 season, mate, after that fifth defeat in the Challenge Cup final, and it's tough, I mean, I, I've never watched it back. I, I don't think I ever will. I remember that no, player's was there even six years ago. I've never felt so low as a fan that day coming home from London. What, I remember you all on the pitch at the end, you know, with Bonesy, with Neil, he walked out with his daughter beforehand. It was just gone from 100 miles an hour to reality check, hadn't it? What was, what was, it must have been so tough in them changing rooms and having to go back out and perform in the middle eights, because, you know, Karen Dixon, he was getting so much stick, it wasn't his best game, was it? And just as yeah. a team, as a team it, was, it was devastating, wasn't it? I've, I've never felt like that. Even the relegation, which we'll speak about the year after, that Wembley fifty 0 defeat. I remember that feeling driving home from London. That sick in my stomach. What was it like for you lads in the room?
2: It, it was the ultimate nightmare
0: yeah.
2: that you could not wake up from. It was just. It just kept kept saying, um, "Them score a try after try, going. When is this going to stop? Um, it was. It was. I don't know, it's hard to explain. It was, um, it, it didn't really hit me, probably probably for a couple of weeks. Um, but out on the pitch, after the game, I was in tears. I, I was just like, it's not meant to go like this, you know. Um, even if it was 20 to 10 and we still lost. Um, but, yeah, I, I was I was absolutely gutted. I... I didn't want to probably speak to anybody, do anything, for quite a number of weeks after that game, and uh, it was probably the one one opportunity I'll ever have to do something something special. And I don't know if if I played a ten out of ten game, if that would have made a difference. Probably not, because. You know, we, we all probably played pretty poorly that day. Um, but yeah, all yeah. It was it was the lowest feeling. Yeah, lowest but... of the lowest.
1: Yeah, quite a uh, well, up and down season really, wasn't it? Lots of highs and you know, lots of lows, obviously challenge cup final. We secured our super league status and Some few personally, thirty two appearances, twenty seven tries, hundred and ten goals, three assists. Forty-one tackle busts. You made made nearly three thousand meters, which averaged over nine meters a game. Thirty-one clean breaks, uh, nine offloads. So personally, um, you know, although the club had had a bit of an up and down season for you personally, it was a, a massive season for you, and probably um, reassured you a bit about making the decision to come over that you, you performed so well personally.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, um, I scored a lot of points that year. I think I scored like three hundred and thirty four or something like that um you know that that was a um that was a big thing for me like i always been a goalkeeper, i always pride myself on being the top point scorer in whatever competition i play in um and after the regular season i was the top point scorer in super league and that's just another thing i i um i pride myself on um my goal kicking is, it's probably the one thing that got me into a lot of teams, but it's also a lot of, it's the one thing that's kept me in a lot of, in a lot of teams. Um, I um, I enjoy it and I was fortunate enough to score a lot of points that year and yeah, like you said, personally, it was one of my most favourite and enjoyable seasons to play in and uh, personally successful as well, it, um, yeah, it, I, it, it's hard, I often compare compare years to 2015 and I think 2015 was far and away my most enjoyable, most fun, you know, regardless of that Challenge Cup result, um, it was the best year of my life
1: yeah. Yeah, awesome. And Joe's going to take us into twenty sixteen. But you just mentioned about goal kicking there, Josh. I still don't think rugby league takes goal kicking seriously when you compare it oh. to, to the union. And and you see how a game can be won, won or lost on its kicking. I still yeah. don't think uh, as a sport we we take that two points seriously. And and we see it so many times where a game's yeah. lost just based on someone missing one or two kicks.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Why, why did you take it so seriously and, and why don't you think, as a sport, we probably don't take it as seriously as we should?
2: Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a weird one because I take it seriously because I am responsible for turning four points into six for my team. If they're working their asses off to score a try, it is my responsibility to, to finish it off and secure those two points. Like, that's, you know, it's as simple as that. Um, I don't do it because I like the limelight, you know. I don't do it because, you know, I like having all the eyes on me, which I don't. It's something that I um, I know I'm good at, and which is why I put my hands up to do it. It's um, My first year there, um, I actually, it was probably my worst goal-kicking season in the last 10 years to be fair um getting used like um i'm gonna sound like a bit of a wanky here but the balls are different and they they travel um differently in the air and off the boot um depending on how much purchase you get on it so it took me a while to adjust from a steedon to a rhino ball um and and, I've, and I found that the the Rhino ball in certain matches was a different one to the Super League ones, um, which was which I found weird, considering it's the same brand and same product. Um, but back to your point about goalkeepers not taking it seriously, I, I I don't know why for the life of me I don't see enough. 85% plus goal kickers mm-hmm. especially in the NRL like these players are getting paid half a million dollars um you know they're not shifting bricks on a work side or pouring concrete it it shouldn't be that hard to to apply your trade uh with goal kicking and practicing and if you're not good enough just keep practicing more or um go seek help you know I um I only got to where I was because of the hours and hours of practice that's pure and simple no one taught me how to kick I um I loved it and I think that, I think it's I think you have to love it as well if you don't love goal kicking then you're not a goal kicker don't do it leave it to someone else who does um you know I loved it I was building goalposts in my backyard you know when I was 13 15 years old um just so I can get out from school and practice. So um, it's a passion, it, and it needs to be a passion if you're going to be successful in it.
0: I think for your goal kicking, mate, you mentioned how vital it is there. And we we'll, will we'll, mention the first game in 2016 in a moment, but I'm going to move on to that 2016 season, Josh. And it's a tough one, isn't it? It's, we mentioned all the ups of 2015, but we move into 2016 and there's still that. Bit of optimism, you know, Chess is still coach. We'd struggled a bit in the league at the back end, but we'd um, won all our games in the middle eight, say out of eight. And we played two um, trial matches against Huddersfield and Hull FC and the derby, 60 points to 12. And I remember thinking at the time, God, this doesn't look the same team as it did six, seven months ago. I know we'd lost a few people.
2: But going
0: yeah. into that 2016 season, had much changed in pre-season. I mean, I know you, you would sign different people. We mentioned Ryan Shaw, he'd come over... Um, young Will Oaks, Robert Chris Clarkson. But we'd also yeah. we'd lost a few of our young kids that had gone Then Sonny Asamon had gone, all them lot. Man. Wellen had gone to Bradford. What what changed in that 2016 pre-season? Did anything, did it seem different? Or was you just going into that as, we're going to give ourselves a good, strong account and we'll carry on where we left off in
2: 2016? I I felt, personally, going into 2016, that we had a weaker squad. Yeah. Um, That's, that's no disrespect to any of the players who came into that team in 2016. Um, But this, this still annoys me to the day, like letting Chris Willem go. He, he was my center partner and, you know, I might be pissing in my own pocket here, but we killed it down that left edge. Um, for Rovers, you know, I scored, what, 26 and he scored 13. So uh, there's 40 tries alone just from us two. Um, I, th- I thought he was a big loss. Um, what and- was your
1: relationship with Ian Fonley? like? Because I-, I always looked at you two and it might be, you know, an easy thing to say, but Ian was obviously a tall you know, sort of rangy player. Obviously, you was yeah. quite similar to that. Was it? Was it as simple as maybe two blokes who were just quite similar in stature and 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 pace and and etc. Playing together, uh, whereas obviously you and Wellham, you had a different dynamic going on there.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, it was. It's hard to say. Like I, I had a lot of um, a lot of games with Chris, which helped. You know, I would have loved to have had a um a better partnership with with Ian like the games that we did play we were solid um, but I was just injured too much of that season and we struggled to really get a good combination um but you know he he played a full season I think I don't think he ever got injured um and he was he was strong um but I just think purely down to the fact that we didn't get enough games um together as a combination that we didn't really click, um, but um, he, he was a quality player, big, strong, good offload. Whereas well he um, he's he's palm, he's two on two, to palm off his own centre and then flick me the ball. Um, he was um, he, he's a talented player, and he's still he's still doing well in the Super League now. So. Yeah, that that ate at me a little bit for a while. Letting Chris go for whatever reasons, you know, I I actually went in and spoke to Jamie Peacock about it. I said, look, it doesn't sit well with me. I'll, I'll just let you know. I'm a little bit pissed off that we got rid of him. Um, that, those are my thoughts. And yeah, so you know, another loss I thought was crucial was. Tyrone McCarthy, he was he was our middleman, he was our glue, he was our leader. Um, you know, you, you can't breed players that just have true leadership qualities. And he was one of those guys. Regardless of how big he is, um, he pound for pound, he he puts his body on the line for you every week. And you know, I thought we missed that as well in 2016. Um, um, you know, his leadership qualities were, were brilliant, especially when Campese was injured. He came straight in and and uh, filled that gap straight away. And um, yeah, I, I thought we lacked a lot of experience over the park in 2016, and just some big, big game, big game players as well.
1: Yeah, you've talked about experience and leadership there, and obviously someone who was part of the club was, was Jamie Peacock, um, and, and me and Joe often talk about the, the five-year plan that Rovers were supposed to be creating there, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder what influence he had around the club and the, the contact he had with players at the time. What what was it like, obviously, having a, a legend of the game within the club, but obviously someone who wasn't there in a, in a playing capacity?
2: Yeah, it, it was it was good. I, um, you know, when he came in, he told us his five-year plan and, um, you know, on paper, those sorts of things, they look good, don't they? Um But I just think the fabric of and the culture of Leeds Rhinos was so different to Hulk KR. Y- you can't. You can't just transfer that something like that as simply as that. Um, It's like when assistant coaches, they're in the Melbourne Storm system for so long, they get a head coaching job somewhere and they try and apply it at another club. And and it doesn't work. Um, I, I think Rovers is unique in that it has its own identity, it has its own culture, and it is something that, you need to build off the back of that in order to be successful, and that that culture is the local people, the you know the um, the supporters, uh, the juniors coming through there. Um, you know that, that to me is what Rovers is all about. You know they're the the supporters, they're the they're the heart and soul. And um, but back to JP. Personally I found him very approachable. I I would often divulge if I'm having a problem with something. I'll just walk straight in his office and say, You got five minutes? And he'd go, Yeah, and you know, he'd he'd be great for me and to him to pull the boots on at the end of the season and try and help us out. <laughs> you know, that that required a lot of um him to you know swallow his pride and you know he, he finished his previous season on a treble retirement. Thank you. You know, um,
1: yeah.
2: You know to pull the boots on and help us um, at the end there was, you know, a testament to him and you know he, he was one tough, you know, one tough mofo. So it was it was pretty special playing alongside him to be honest.
1: Yeah, well, we just talked about goal kicking and the and the importance of it, and obviously we go to the first game of the season against Cass, um, and obviously personally for you it's quite a quite a big game. Talk us about talk us through obviously scoring, obviously the kick, and then uh, didn't you only have one eye during that game?
2: Yeah, it was um, obviously round one. It's still winter, packed Craven Park, but. You know the wind's going sideways, uh, so does the rain, and it was freezing. Um, it was just just a really tough, grinding sort of a game, really. Um, it was six all at half time. You know, I think we scored just in half time to make it six all, and then second half we're going into this wind. I ran back out, actually shivering because it was that cold. When I kicked off, the ball hung up in the air for about five seconds and bounced on the 10-metre line, like 10 metres away from me, bounced back to me, and I I regathered. That's how strong the wind was. And, um, yeah, it was just a a hard, grinding match. And, you know, we're down 16-10 and awesome backline play right on the bell beautiful pass from Benny Kakane and managed to get over in the corner and when I when I scored in the corner I got a poke in the eye from John Monaghan and I just remember being on the ground trying to open my eye and I don't know if you've ever had sand in your eye but that's what it felt like and it closed over immediately like my my eyelid and, and the bottom just puffed up and just closed over and I'm thinking, oh geez, that's not good. Um I looked at the clock, sirens just, just sounded and we're down by two and so I just had to sort of collect my thoughts there um for a couple of minutes just to get my head around the fact that I'm kicking into this tornado on the sideline with one eye. So Albert Kelly comes up to me and goes, You're right, Do you want me to take the kick? And I'm thinking, No, nah, it's all right, mate, I got it. Um because I know he probably wouldn't have the distance kicking into that wind. And when I was lining it up, I can I can just remember thinking to myself, just make sure you make contact with the ball. If you miss the kick, no one's, no one's going to be upset because they're not expecting you to kick it, given your situation. Um, you know, the crowd behind me, they were sort of up against the fence and a little bit quiet. Um... But yeah, just walking into the ball, I just remember, just make sure you make contact with the ball. Just make sure you get a foot onto it. Make sure you attempt to make it look a little bit half decent. And when I kicked it, I smacked it that hard. It just went dead straight. And it was just hanging up, hanging up, hanging up in the wind and dropped behind me, um, the black dot and then, then they touched his throat their flag and... It was the loudest noise I have ever heard in my life. That stadium right behind me and um, I've, got, I've, got, I've got this freeze frame image in my mind of James Donaldson running towards me. He was one of the first ones to get to me um, after I killed that goal and you know all the, all the boys came over and hugged me and um, I knew deep down that we deserved something out of that match, I thought, given the the, um, the negative press and all that, we got from losing to FC in that friendly by 60 points to 20 or whatever it was uh, for us to come out and, you know, put it to Cass, who were a strong team at that time. Um, you know, I, I thought we, we deserved that, that one point, but unfortunately I, I – I'd be out for the next six weeks with that eye injury and it's a um, it's something that's permanent now. It's still um, permanently vision impaired. So, um, you know, I had to get that fixed up for six weeks and miss six games, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, guys, um, you know, to say that you've still got it, what, five years on? It must have had some impact on you, mate. And it definitely, your admission from the squad definitely had some impact on the team because we ended up losing... Um, six on the bounce after that. I'm just looking at some of the games: 40 points to eight against Warrington, 38-6 against Udersfield, losing to away at Widness and ultimately Chris Chester lost his job. I think it was after the Wakefield game at home. James oh, yeah. Webster, yeah, James Webster who was coaching the under-19s, the City of Academy at the time. Kind of, you know, jumped ship and came to be um, Rover's head coach. For you at that time, obviously was injured, mate. But things were going so wrong off the um, on the pitch. For you, who wasn't being able to play, it must have been so tough. And what was your thoughts when, obviously, Kezzy, who only seven months ago got us to a Wembley appearance, had been sacked and James Webster comes in for the rest of the season? It was a tough one, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, there were... That that moment is just one of many that sort of put the nail in our coffin for that season. Yeah. Um, oh Just a list of things that went wrong that year. And that was just, that was probably one of them. I, like, Chessie getting sacked after round three was pretty was pretty heavy. Um, at the time, I was injured. Kev Leroy was injured. Campo was still injured. James Donaldson injured himself the week before against Warrington. Um, you know, so we already had half a dozen blokes on the sideline with six eight 12 week injuries um, so it was a little bit a little bit tough and just watching on the sideline was just it was the absolute worst um, to go from playing 32 games the previous season to to hardly any the following year uh, for me personally that was tough um, but having James Webster come in he offered a, like a fresh, Fresh take on things, um, good game plans, um, but I just don't think we really had the cattle on the field to 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 really um, fulfil those those game plans. You
0: no, know, and you mentioned the nail in the coffin's there, mate. And obviously, 2016 was a shite season for all of us. Never mind you <laughs> with all your injuries, and I look back at the LFC game when we was twenty nil up and we got we ended up getting beat twenty two um twenty. You um, you broke your arm that game, didn't you? You was out for a long, long yeah. time. Was yeah. Your second game back wanted. But for me in that personally that game, that was probably one of the games when you look back and think we was probably nailed on to get relegated. Then just the fact that Hull yeah. came back. It kick started their season. I mean Radford was um, on about going as well and then they ended up a bit winning the Challenge Cup that yeah. But for that Hull F C game and and We mentioned the Challenge Cup again. The worst, probably the worst fixture of that season in the long run. I know we're going to speak about the million-pound game, but you wasn't involved in this game, Josh. But the Challenge Cup game, Hulk KR 22, part-time, bottom of the championship, Alden heads 36. I've never yeah. seen, I've never seen a team crumble in 80 minutes like Rovers did that day. What, what was the matter? What? I just can't put my hands on it. The atmosphere was dire, and we've spoke about that atmosphere. At, Peddingly, the year prior, it was such a change, was in the space of, what, eight, nine months we've gone from the Warrington Challenge Cup semi, that euphoria that you and Chris spoke about, to getting yeah. um, beat by a part-time championship team, who I think were 100-1 to 1 on at the time, and um, yeah. 1,000 fans left in the stadium hailing abuse at all the players. you must have been stand. It, it, was, it was pretty dire, wasn't it, mate? And it was turning very, very sour midway through twenty.
2: Yeah, awesome. always. I was up in the um, one of the um, would have been the, like, the sponsors' um, rooms up in the stands watching the game, and I couldn't believe what, what I was watching. Um, it was oh, it was a horrible eighty minutes to watch, honestly. And I remember being in the sheds after the after the game, and I started getting emotional because I thought. Well that's it, that's that's no Challenge Cup. You know, I won't be able to get to Planet a Challenge Cup game this year. Um you know, and to, I think I I think I went around the corner and had a bit of a, a bit of a salt to myself, but um you know, Jamie Peacock and Neil Hodgewell they came in and they were they were filthy and rightly so. Because um, what what the boys dished up that day it was absolute shite. So um, yeah, that was that was yet another nail in the um 2016 coffin.
1: I think it wasn't just that as well, is because obviously we got beat 40 nil the week before against Catalans as well. Um, but it shows you how erratic oh, it was yeah. that season because then the, the, next, the next game we went and beat Castleford and put 58 points past them. So, you, yeah, I think that's what supporters we really struggled with is just them inconsistencies within the team,
2: yeah. And that's you know what, we were consistently inconsistent over my period there at Rovers. Um, we could easily put 50 points on a good team, but the following week we could have 40 put on put against us, um, you know, um. Yeah, that 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 Good Friday game that that probably started the the rot. Um, obviously, Chesney got sacked probably six weeks prior, but that that challenge that uh, sorry that Friday Good Friday game against FC when we were up twenty nil and looking good, and it just sort of crumbled in that last twenty minutes, and um, you know, I just. I just remember thinking to myself, just just keep playing because I think I um I busted my arm after five minutes. Steve Michaels rushed out of the line and jammed me in one of the hardest tackles I've coped and um Yeah, that put me out for another twelve weeks, unfortunately. And I uh, couldn't get to play in that Challenge Cup game or that all that cast win the following week, but I remember had that cast ground I was I was um, watching the boys rack up the points and I had to go in the change rooms and sort of just listen to music. I couldn't watch it. I didn't want... Yeah, it was... I'm a shocking spectator.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that was probably one of the only highs, mate. And when we speak about 2016 for Hulkingston Rovers, it's all about the wrong reasons. And I think the Super 8s definitely, you know, is the pinnacle of Hulkingston Rovers' downfall that season. I mean, it started off we beat um, Batley, and we expected to, I think, 58-18 at home. But then we go away. We lose against Leeds Ranos, Um But we ended up actually beating Salford away from home. And it was like, God, we're two from, you know, we're two from three here. Um, after that Salford game, 29-12. And we're like, you know what? We might get out of jail. We've been shite all season. But if we can try and get through to 2017, we can start again. But I think after that yeah. Salford game, there was a bit of optimism, were not there, mate? And I think that was uh, the last bit of optimism we had.
2: Yeah, um, a lot, you know, a lot happened off the field, yeah, um, in between those two games and like going into that league game at home. We let me from memory, we started well, and um, it just again, a 15 minute period, we just capitulated, and I remember walking off the field and. Um, I think I went into the physio room and I just I just threw my shit against the wall and I just I was just over it, just the just the way we were playing. I was just so over it. Um, yeah, it was that awful game to go from such a good high, a good win away, to losing to Lee at home. That was that was pretty damn low, and I think that's when JP. Decided to put the boots on.
0: Yeah, he did. And I remember at the time, Chris, it was, it was awful, wasn't it? Because, as we mentioned, we just beat Salford away. And then that home game at Lee, I mean, Lee was nearly up there. And I know they, um, they did get promoted that season. There was outstanding, especially against Huddersfield the week after. But we'd been beaten again by a championship team. And it was just getting a bit too familiar, wasn't it, Chris? I mean, the Evans Open, Ben Kakane struggled under the eyeball, And people like ex-players like Corey Patterson and stuff ripped us apart that day, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and I just wondered what was happening in training, and then what was happening on a game day. Because, like we've alluded to, we could we could easily turn over any team in Super League, but then we could also go turn up against an Oldham and get and get beat. So, what was happening in training, and then what happened on a game day? Was there any differences, or was there anything one thing that you can put your finger on to on to just why
2: you couldn't get that consistency? I, I don't know. I don't know why we couldn't get that consistency. It was the most frustrating thing about the whole year. Um, I, I just don't think we had um, – looking back on it now, I don't know if we had the confidence or the trust in each other just to sort of calm down, just get on with the game, get back to our processes. You know, especially defensively. If we leaked one or two, we'd leak three, four. Um, yeah, I think it just came back to that confidence and that um, the trust that we had in each other defensively. Because you know, a lot of times teams scored back to back on us uh, at crucial crucial points in the game too. So it's um yeah, it's just you something. Think Do you think
1: it's too simple to say that if we'd have started the season with a fit Terry Campezi and he managed to see the campaign out, things might have been different?
2: It would have helped. It definitely would have helped. Um, Yeah, I just felt that we had had players going in and out, in and out of the roster every week. And and to be fair, the injury list over the whole year, we had I reckon probably a dozen players – With eight to 12 week injuries, which is crazy. Um, We couldn't get any consistency. Um, We couldn't get our full squad on the field all at once. And um, yeah, it was just the absolute anomaly of of a season. Yeah, to be honest. Joe's
1: going to take us into that dreaded million pound game, but I think one of the worst things that happened was actually. Jamie Peacock putting his hand up and coming out of retirement because I think the message it sends to people is desperation. Um, yeah. And that's what it sent to us as supporters. Never mind the fact, you know, you blokes on the training pitch seeing this, this bloke was obviously achieved so much, but, you know, an old man, oldish man coming back out to almost save the day. I just don't think yeah. the message was 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 right. And I, and I think, um, I don't think we needed it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I actually haven't looked at it like that. I um, The way I saw it was he was responsible for recruitment, retention, and based on those decisions, we're in this position we're in now. So maybe he was probably stepping in to maybe rectify um, those decisions. I don't know. Yeah, it's just... Um, I do know that I think we lost James Green last round against Leeds or round two of the Super eights. So we did lose another big middle and um, that that probably opened up the door for him. but um, other than that, yeah, it's interesting to get a fan's perspective on that though.
0: yeah, it was um it was a tough time and non tougher then. That million-pound game, obviously a game that will live in the memory of all Kingston Rovers fans and players like yourself, mate. And you know, for a long, time. we've spoken to Michael Dobson, we've spoken to Weller Araki, who've come on the show, former Robins who were actually on the winning team that day. But me and Chris, you know, we're really looking forward to this because we, we mentioned all these nails in the coffins, Josh. Everything went wrong in 2016, but to be 18-10 up with two minutes to go and for them to score two tries. Again, a bit like the Ossimusoy awesome, injury. I've watched it a million times. I still can't believe it happened. Leading up to that game, what was the attitude around the players? You know, you were going to have a job, a contract. During the game, when you and Adam Walker scored to make it 10-0, it was like we are in control. But just sum up that million-pound week, that million-pound game, and then last two minutes, mate, before we move on to Gareth O'Brien in extra time. It was horrific. And I don't think we'll ever see anything as dramatic as that in a relegation game. I know it's scraps now. But
2: in the long run, I don't think we'll let get like that. Um the week, oh just going back a week, you know Terry Campese hits hits the goalpost.
0: Yeah, and then scores a the field the goal yeah. and
2: you know, Danny Bruff scores yeah. Yeah. a yeah. field goal, but it missed. So I was just thinking, is anything gonna go out? Fucking way this year, or what? Um, going into that week, we're like, no, nah, we're not losing this, not at home, no chance in the hell. Um, we, we had the presentation night on, on the Tuesday, I think, and the vibe I got from the fans and um, everyone within the club was. No matter what happens, we'll still be there. You know, we'll still support. And I just got this sick feeling in my stomach, thinking um, people aren't—they're not too confident in us to do the job. And um, there's But Josh, I
1: think I think that was a disaster in itself. Having that that awards evening, the week yeah. before. You know, he yeah. talks about planning and preparation for the Challenge Cup final. Well, I think that was another, you know, an example of something off the field, maybe taking yeah. print, where it just didn't need to happen. Nobody had complained one bit if they'd have postponed it by a week or... Yeah, I or agree. I just think the club tried to shoehorn it in because there was worried that if, obviously we did lose, that award ceremony wouldn't have been taking place, would it, after the yeah. game. So I just game? I just thought it was so necessary.
2: Yeah, and it just added, like, another night where you talked about the million-pound game again, whereas you could be at home just not thinking about footy, just thinking about life. and um, Yeah, but going into the game, I felt sweet. Um, we got a good early start. I think we were up 10-0, and then obviously they came back. It was 12-all, half-time, and 10-all, 10, 10 half-time. Um, Sorry, we kick a penalty, 12-10. Yeah. And then after the break, we score in the corner, kick a a goal, 18-10. It was like that for a while, and then, uh, you know, had two minutes to go. Oh, I just remember, I was on the left side of the field, and I think they broke down the left side twice. Once for that first try and then again through Josh Griffin and I i screamed across the field to make that tackle on the other side of the field and I replay it over and over in my head, why didn't I just lay on top of that tackle? Why didn't I just jump on the ball in the ruck? Get sent ten minutes in the same bin. Who cares? There's five seconds to go. Um, what are the chances of them scoring off a set line defence? You know what I mean. I um that ate at me for for ages. Um, I got I believe when I made that tackle I got off too quickly because um, they eventually scored on the opposite side of the field in my corner and. Um, Thankfully you missed the goal, but going in extra time. Just thinking, what what the fuck just happened? You know, how, do we, how, do, how do we get here? And anyway, I think I think we kicked off and um, it was the first out of the game I, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, it was forty-five metres out. I thought he was going for for just like a kick to the corner. But I'll give it to him. It was the sweetest, best-looking dropkick I have ever seen in my life. And it, I just remember looking up at it, went over my head, over the post, came over, and I just thought, that's it, that's it, that's over. And um, the rest was a bit of a blur, but I, I remember being in the sheds, like, literally in tears. Like, I... I... Uh, I remember saying to Sue Thompson, um, I don't want to go home yet. That's that's. I remember saying that to her, like, I'm not ready to go home. And um, I think we were in there for about 20 minutes, half an hour maybe. I, I can't remember. But um, we got called outside because, you know, there was a couple of thousand fans still waiting um, to clap us off. And I um, – that – to me, tells you the kind of people that you play for at Rovers. Um, they, they stood out there and watched us not only get relegated, stood out there for an extra half hour, 45 minutes, and waited for us to come back out in the field so they could officially you know, clap us off the pitch. And I just remember walking around. I, I couldn't hold it together. I could not look anybody in the eye. I was... I was that emotional. I was just, I just, well, I was walking around saying, I'm sorry, you know, I was literally apologizing to, to everybody as I was walking around. And then I just, I remember breaking down and um, I saw little Charlie. He's a fan. i see him at all the fan days. I see him after a game. And uh, I think I was his favorite player at the time. And he ran out. And he gave me a hug, and I just thought, oh, yeah, I was an absolute mess. Um, and then I think, yeah, the whole, whole thing was, we we went out for drinks that night, and it was it was shit. It was the worst, worst Sunday night, May Monday, um, you could have. And I remember texting. Getting text off Nudo that night, and I just said, "Mate, I'm I'm still crying. Like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, what, what's 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 going to happen now, or anything like that." So it was um like obviously compared to anything else in life, like the death of someone or anything like that, it doesn't compare like that. But to me, this was something so special, so close to my heart that I put so much of my life effort and energy into, and I see it taken away like that, I was, I was heartbroken. It was like I went through a breakup. Hmm. That's how I would put it. It was the worst breakup. So, yeah. Thanks for taking me down that, that track again.
0: <laughs> yeah, mate, it's, um, it's, it's so tough to talk about. And I mean, it's, it's what, five years ago now. Literally, it seems like two minutes ago, but, I think a lot of people, when it happened, it, we knew about the contract situation. Before we finish up, Josh, I mean, you, you, you still would have had a year. I know contracts get annulled and stuff, and we have to start again. What was the negotiations like? In your red day, you mentioned to sue that you're not ready to go home. Was there any chance of you staying once the negotiations uh, negotiations started, or did it just not work out that way? What was the, um, oh. the next few weeks like for you and the players?
2: Oh, the next. Makes- next couple of weeks, like for me personally, I was just thinking, oh, well, we had Mad Monday. Tuesday we get called into Jamie Peacock's office to discuss the contracts. Um, and at this point, mentally, like my headspace is just, yeah. A, I'm not in the mood, B, I don't give a shit, see, righto, what's this going to be? Um, he told me, you know, what he was going to offer me and uh, he really wanted me to stay. And I knew, I knew that because Tim Sheen's rang me on the Monday night. Um, he was keen for me to stay as well. Um, but the contract came nowhere near the contract that, I was originally offered, um, I was signed to play Super League, I I couldn't justify a year away playing in a lower division on a lot less money, um, I know that sounds selfish but if I was 23... I would have taken it, Uh, but I was turning 30 and I really had to um, really really weigh up that decision and I would have loved to have stayed. Like, I don't think – well, I don't know. I hope people realise and understand how hard it was for me to leave Rovers because – I could easily say that even though 2016 was a shit year, those two years were still the best years of my life. Um, I got to meet so many fantastic people and relationships I made, the friendships I made. um, But I just thought I could come home a year earlier, get a year head start on my uh, studies and ultimately my, my career after footy and um see how things panned out from there. But all of twenty seventeen probably and probably most of twenty eighteen it was it was depressing seeing um Rovers Super League updates and all that sort of stuff because I just wish I was there. Pure and simple. But yeah, didn't work out
1: and I think that's why we're really keen to do all these heritage casts, uh, Josh. Because obviously, the the at that moment in time, fans have got a perspective on things. We don't get the full facts of why someone might want to leave. So, you know what's going on at the club, etc. It's only maybe you know after a year or a couple of years that you get the hindsight and you can start to appreciate and understand why people make decisions that like they do. Um, interestingly, one of the, what we put out to the supporters about. Any questions? And the overriding question, what did come out was was why did you leave? And even Ryan yeah. Shaw piped up and sent us a message asking why you why you deserted a sinking ship. <laughs>
2: um, I not
1: want to that Yeah, but <laughs> do, do you, is it a decision that you maybe regret? Because no doubt, if you'd had played that that championship season, you'd you'd have played a major part in. And obviously, re, being part of that rebuild of the club at the time, and, and getting us back to Super League, or is it something like you're happy to, you know, look back on and say, do you know what? I've done my time, and and what's happened since then is, is you know, it is another chapter.
2: Uh, I am. Um, I think at the time, I didn't. I respected my decision but it didn't mean I enjoyed it. Um, and now that we're what, five years down the track, I've got my degree. I've got my career. I've got my job. You know, I've got, you know, I've got a house and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I think if I put all of that off for another year, would I be here right now? And the answer is probably no. Um, would that twenty seventeen season be as successful if I played in it? Just because it it was without me, It doesn't necessarily mean that it would have been successful with me in it. Um, I um I wouldn't have been fit for the first four to six games of that season anyway, because towards the end of the year i I needed to get thumb and wrist reconstruction, so I was out for three to six uh, three to four months anyway. um. I, I do regret the fact that that million pound game was my last game. I didn't get to go out uh, on my own terms. Um, but uh, when, you, when you're dealing with contracts and all that sort of stuff, it's you're dealing with that much shit in your own head. Um, you can talk yourself into things. You can talk yourself out of things and, I, I felt at the time you know the club knew how much I loved it and they probably used that against me by probably lowballing me a little bit um, or realizing that um, I was so injured that year probably justified their offer but either way you know the players that stayed they are the I'm not speaking for everyone here. They all they got the same amount, or they got upgraded. So um, when I when you hear things like that, it's that sort of messes with your head a bit too. And um, I just thought, yeah, I'll, I'll come home and like I said, it wasn't an, wasn't an enjoyable twenty seventeen being home, um, but it was one. Decision that I had to make, and now looking back, it was probably the wrong one, unfortunately.
0: No, so right Matt. I think what I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast you, you've never been on like footballers' wages, few hundred grand a week, you have to do what's best for you. And now you've got your degree, you teach your maths, you're set for life, and that's great to hear. And you've always got these memories to you know ponder back on. And we look back at 2017, you know, ultimately, we did get promoted and stuff, so the goal did still work and it's just been really great to speak to you mate we do really appreciate your time I mean what we've had two hours Chris it's been really good to hear because we've dealt with people who was in the early Super League years when everything was rosy and everything was was a new club and the um, expectations weren't as high whereas for you guys we've had the ups and downs and we've spoke about sore subjects but it's good to get off your chest and it's good for all fans to hear I don't know about you Chris but I've really enjoyed these two hours.
1: Yeah, do, do you know what, mate? It's only like the fact you will just say it's two hours that like it's you, you realise how long you've been talking, don't you? And,
2: yeah, I've um, yeah. for another two hours, honestly. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and, and, and what's great is, and this is why we get such a good reaction with, with, with the Heritage cast is because, um, you know, the, the talking to, to players like yourself, Josh, you take us back to a time, good and bad, that we, we all, you know, look back on fondly or we look back negatively, but it's an important chapter in in the club's history. So it's been fascinating. One thing that I just wanted to close on is, is obviously you enjoyed your time on the pitch, but you enjoyed it off it as well. And going, new and Princess Ave,
2: you know, 100%.
1: you and Dane Till shooting your stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> t- tell us about, when, tell us about the nightlife in Hull. Oh, it's easily
2: one of the best. Like
0: <laughs>
2: that was, it's not the same here in Australia, honestly. Over there, you've got Prinny Ave, Newland Ave, and your old town. Um, and some of the some of the best memories I have are of you know just going out with either Dane Tilts, the Aussie boys, or you know Kieran Dixon. Kieran Dixon was sometimes my little partner, and um, just meeting new people and just how how lovely the the people in Hull are, really. Like, even – I probably shouldn't say this on a Rovers podcast, but, you know, I met some black and whites and, you know, they were nice to me, you know, after after a beer or two. So just the people in Hull in general, um, uh, it's – I just honestly can't wait to get back there. And, you know, even, um, you know, going out – John Cox, John Cox showed me a few things as well. Um, yeah, who I, who I miss dearly, he was, he was one person that, um, he took me under his wing as soon as I got there and, um, he, um, I suppose, he became one of my, um, one of my close mates over there actually and, what happened to him last year is just absolutely devastating and, um, I'm gonna go on a little bit of a bit of a rant here, but when when you when you're um, in the same spot for a long period of time, like I was before I came to Hull, um, you know, people know you, they know of you, and they they think they know who you are as a person, and based on any interactions you might have had with them, or based on your first impressions on them. And when I went to Hull, it was just completely clean. No one knew who I was. Um, And to get that, to get that fresh start in a new town, when I was at a time in my life when I knew 100% who I was, what I wanted to do over in Hull, what I wanted to achieve, and you know, for people to respond positively to that, um, to me, was the biggest compliment ever. And um, you know, John Cox, he was—he was someone that understood <coughs> me, and I understood him. And I just think it's a shame that there's one less person in this world now who who can bring a smile to my face. It's—it's. It's, um, yeah, I was absolutely heartbroken by that news.
0: Yeah, it was tragic news, mate. I mean, it was daft as a brush, wanted Jordan, but such a lovable kid. I think it showed, I mean, when his funeral it was so tough because of covid restrictions. And I mean at the time I think there was only fifteen people who could go, but when he, um, his coffin was brought around Craven Park and into Eastern Cemetery, there were so many fans there, and it was—I mean—when he went to Warrington, he was got really good friends with Stephen Ratchford, and it just seemed a lovely blow, you know. And especially on a night out, I bet you've got some stories that you're um, you're going to cherish, mate, and save for yeah, save for another day. Yeah,
2: yeah. So um, no, he, he was he was good to me. Always good to him. I was always good to him. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Good memories.
0: <laughs> yeah, Ozzy was a great kid, mate, and um, it's just been great to speak to you, Josh. I mean, we really appreciate it. Literally, last one, mate, before we wrap up in a few minutes, seeing you watch, been watching Rovers in 2021 still. What's your thoughts? Yeah. Because, again, it's similar to 2015, we sound a lot of people from the NRL, Corbin Sims, Albert Vette, Brad Takarangi. We haven't seen the best of any of them yet. I know we're only two games in. We've got a Challenge Cup game, Cup win, obviously, when we're filming this episode this Friday against Castleford. But, it's Again, it's, it's so hard with Alkingston Rovers. You get your, for you, who was there in 2016, yeah, we haven't really kicked on since coming back up into Super League, and I'm hoping we can have a little bit of a better year, but at the moment, we're, we're struggling a bit, and I know we played the Champions St. Helens last week. I know you'd seen you put about um, Robert Hicks, the ref and stuff, but do you still keep interactive with Walkingston Rovers when you can?
2: Yeah, I try as much as I can. Um, if it's if it's uh, live on the sky over in England than it's live here Um, but the other games I don't get to see Um, yeah it's it's been a tough first two rounds had a good comeback against Catalan but you know James Maloney has got that magic boot and sort of stopped that and last week it was I think went toe to toe for a good while it was a good arm wrestle but I think they just kicked away at the end and I think really, um, you've got the cattle, it's just you probably need an experienced halfback or a 5'8", I think. Um, someone to really organise the troops and uh, utilise Quinlan out the back. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably just probably one area we might be lacking this season, just in the halves.
0: Yeah, we totally agree. I mean, Takarangi might fit in there, but you'll know better than we do. You know, seeing him in the NRL, he's not on half-back primary, is he? It's not his primary position. So, you know, it's not just me and Chris, guys, who think we need an half-back, it's ex-players as well. Josh, if you want to play 5-8, mate, I'm sure you might be able to come over and get a six-month deal.
2: <laughs> Catch and pass, that's all I do. <laughs>
0: all you need to do, mate, feed it to Adam Quinn and let him hopefully do his magic. But it's been great, Chris, Annett. Really appreciate you coming on, Josh. I've really enjoyed it, mate. and um. Hopefully we can hear from you soon. I mean, last message, have you got anything for the fans? Last words before we wrap up?
2: Um, yeah, probably probably a few thank yous. Hey, I um go for it, Matt. Sue Thompson. Um she was at the club when I first arrived. She she was like my second mother over there. She she looked after me, she set me up, she got my she got me groceries on the first day and um you know I just Really appreciate the time and effort she put into me for making my um, transition to the club uh, very smooth. You know, um, you know, she was awesome for me. And you know, fans like um, you know Jimmy and Ian Lowe's—they um, they're Rovers fans, but we became good friends over the course of the two years. And um, you know, they took me out to restaurants, showed me the sights, and. Um you know I consider them really good friends now and you know even even the even the diehards like Tetley and um you know topless Tetley in the stands and um Rich Wally and Tony and Tracy Curl and even the um the ex Hull Kiwi, you know, she still follows me to my game. So you know fans like that. Um it makes um, the experience so much more special. And if it wasn't for people like those, um, um, playing for Rovers wouldn't be such a good thing. They made it something special and something I'll always remember.
0: Yeah, definitely, mate. And that 2015 season was very special. I think the photo that sums up your two years at the club was um, in the rain um, after the Challenge Cup semi when you've got your arms in the air and Wembley bound. It was um, a brilliant photo, Josh. And just thanks for me and Chris for coming on the show, mate. We really appreciate it and thanks for your two years at All Kingston Rovers I know a lot of fans appreciated your time and you'll definitely go down as one of the fans favourites so keep well mate, keep up with the maths teaching we hope to see you again on social media soon interacting because we've really appreciated it and uh, hopefully cool. these guys enjoy the podcast it's been a really good two hours has it Chris
1: Amazing mate, yeah and we just appreciate your time Josh and we wish you all the best for the future
2: Cheers, thank you, thanks for the call and um, yeah any time, let's do it again <laughs>
0: thank you mate well if people get bored of me and Chris which I'm sure they'll do if we keep losing games you can come and do the hosting if you want we'll
2: <laughs> well, <stuff>. to be <laughs> fair I'll probably, I'll probably put people to sleep with his voice so.
0: no mate no, not at all but thank you mate really appreciate it and that's another Heritage episode done guys with me Joe ad Chris Johnson and special guest former Robin Josh Mantelard so thanks for your time Josh all the best mate
2: thank you <laughs>